Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent discussion with Kim Addis, president and founder of Frame of Mind Coaching, about leadership, crisis management, and sycophant syndrome. Hello, this is Kim Addis from Frame of Mind Coaching, and you have just joined the Frame of Mind Coaching Podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce to you my guest, Jonathan Westover. Well, it's Dr. Jonathan Westover. Did I get that right? Uh, sure, uh, but you can call me John. I can call you John. Wow, we're getting really uh, cozy. <laughs> I'm happy about that. So, you're an interesting guy because, I mean, I interview a lot of people and they're either, you know, kind of experts in their field or entrepreneurs, and you're a little bit of both, or you're a lot of both. Let's put it that way. So you are, um, what's your position at the Valley, Utah Valley University? What is the role that you play? Explain it for us, please. Yeah, I'm an associate professor of organizational leadership at Utah Valley University. And I'm uh, department chair of the organizational leadership department. So I teach courses. I, I do academic research. Um, I, I serve on, on campus and in the community. Um, I manage a faculty team of 15 full-time faculty and about another 30 um, part-time faculty. And then just all the interesting things that happen in the university higher ed space. You know, that's, that's the stuff I do uh, in that job. And then you're right, on the other side, I, I am an entrepreneur and I, I, I consider myself a scholar practitioner. So at what our- What does that even mean? Yeah, so scholar in terms of I'm a PhD academic, I teach, I'm at a university, I do the academic thing. Um, practitioner um, means you know I'm, I'm out there doing the work. So I'm, it's not just the ivory tower research, but I'm out there meeting with clients. I have my own uh, consulting firm, Human Capital Innovations, that I started back in 2007, and and I balance both. So the the nice thing about academia and being a professor is that you have a lot of autonomy and flexibility. Um, I, you know, I have to teach my classes, so I you know I have to show up when those are uh, occurring. Uh, I have to you know go to meetings, and I, you know I have some of that stuff going on. Uh, but beyond you know, maybe 10 hours of structured time a week where it's scheduled. Uh, then I have time to work on my own research projects, collaborate with colleagues, travel uh, to go do either academic or practitioner, you know, consulting type projects and work. Uh, and, and so I just have a lot of flexibility and autonomy, uh, which is wonderful. So it actually, you mentioned there's not a lot of academics that are also entrepreneurs or consultants. 
And I, I agree generally, I think um, the vast majority of academics just do the academic thing. Mm -hmm. But I do think there are, especially in business, I think there's more, probably disproportionately larger number of professors in the business fields um, that do some side consulting as well. Um, and that's that's certainly something I've done. And I have enough time and flexibility to do that, to schedule you know, opportunities like this to talk with you and, right. and meet with clients and, and do those sorts of things. And host a podcast. And host a podcast. Yeah. So I, I host the Human Capital Innovations podcast, um, which you were a guest on and interview a lot of people from around the world. And, and it's just a lot of fun to be able to have different ways to connect with people, to share ideas. And one of the things I feel strongly about, you know, from the scholar practitioner model that I try to to do is that I, I don't want to be stuck in this ivory tower type of academia where I do this esoteric research that, you know, a handful of people are going to read and understand, you know, with all these statistics that people don't really get. Uh, I do that. I, I publish those types of papers and that has value because that does add to the, the uh, scientific knowledge in my mm -hmm. field. Um, but I, I want to be able to translate that into practitioner language that the average manager and leader will be able to understand and utilize. And if I only do academic publishing, then I'm missing a huge audience and a huge potential to benefit people. And my, my hope is that through the work that I do, that I can not only help my students prepare for their careers to be successful, um, but that I can also, and not only help to further uh, the scholarly work, and, and ex extend the scientific knowledge in my area, but that I can help organizations, actual organizations with actual people, actual organizational leaders, better understand themselves, their people, and how to have more effective organizations. That's, mm -hmm. that's my goal. And you know, particularly at my university, Utah Valley University, we're a regional uh, teaching-focused university that, and we have the, the kind of mission of being an engaged, university, mm -hmm. uh, com community engagement, an anchor institution where we're going to help to benefit the surrounding community. And so I, I am able to inform my teaching through doing um, consulting um, that I, I bring those experiences to the classroom with real world examples uh, and in application. I help my students similarly develop skills by doing um, consulting projects as students with outside organizations so that when they leave the university, they not only have a degree, they have, you know, a certain knowledge set, but they also have done practical projects. So let me skills. slow you down. So let yeah. me slow you down. So there are a couple of questions I have. So you are this, what do you call it? An organizational leadership development expert. Okay, so I want to go there, but I also think it's really interesting that you are bringing your students into your work. So what does organizational leadership even mean? Does it mean helping leaders become better at running their organizations? I, I'm simplifying. I like to simplify things, but is that what it means? Uh, yeah, basically, that's exactly what it means. It's, it's to help organizations function better. Okay. Um, and I take a people-centric organization orientation. So there's different ways of framing what does a successful organization look like. Um, for me, a successful organization is one that is profitable and successful in the market. Otherwise, the organization won't exist. So that, that's necessary. But it's also an organization that 
respects uh, its people and it, it treats uh, it both its its employees as well as the consumers with dignity. Uh, and it, you know, an organization that's focused on sustainability and not hurting its people just to make a profit. Okay. Um, so that's my orientation. And then it, organizational leadership is all about how do we make that happen? How do we help the organizations in terms of policies, practices, um, structures, behaviors, um, function, and put mechanisms in place to function more both efficiently, effectively, um, people-centric, and find success in the market? So where do you find that organizations slash leaders fall short in creating effective organizations and leading people efficiently, effectively, and respectfully? Yeah, a great question. And obviously it depends. I mean, there, there's you have the whole gamut of organizational health and leader effectiveness. And there's lots of different leadership styles. And the research shows that there's really, there is no magic bullet. There's no one leadership style that's going to be the most effective um, because it does depend on the context. It depends mm -hmm. on the industry you're in, the sector, and the type of products and services you provide, the size of your company. All those things matter, right? Um, ultimately, I believe as I already mentioned, that the best organizations are those that are going to focus on their people because the people are the ones who are creative and innovate. And if you want high quality products and services with people who interface with the customers in a positive way and represent your brand and your company well, you have to have people who feel empowered, who feel um, like they have the opportunity to do their best work, to make an impact on society, all of those things. So uh, that's my framing. And I also believe in sustainability. I believe not, I, I'm not just talking about environmental so, sustainability, but I'm so, talking so, about organizational health sustainability. Yeah, no, so let me ask the question maybe a little differently. Um, I understand your orientation, but why, why do leaders struggle to make yeah. their organizations uh, to, to empower their people and to create sustainability and even basic profitability? Where's the shortcoming? Is it that leaders aren't trained? Is it that leaders don't know the research? Is it that leaders have a different agenda? Like what's stopping leaders from thriving and helping their teams thrive? And, and I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes to what you just said. Um, frankly, I think the vast majority of leaders don't, have that people-centric orientation and they don't have a sustainability mindset, uh, frankly. So when it comes back to like, what's the problem? What's the gap? I think at a fundamental level, uh, when I work with organizations, when I work with leaders, I want to help them understand those two key pieces. And it, like specifically in the US, we'll talk for a moment because obviously there's differences around the world. But when we're talking about in the US, we have a very short-term orientation uh, mm -hmm. and companies are very concerned about quarterly earnings reports. They're worried about profitability, you know, for shareholders and, and a byproduct of that. I mean, to a certain extent that's healthy because it drives healthy competition. So mm -hmm. to the extent competition is healthy, that's good. Um, but one of the byproducts of that is that over time we become more and more short-term oriented and, and rather than looking at what's going to be the right decision for my organization to help us 
be successful in the market a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, far too often leaders feel intense pressure to make sure that they do things to make themselves look good this quarter. And those aren't necessarily in opposition to each other, but a lot of times they can be. So you, you can do things in the short term to make yourself look good and to make the, the um, balance sheets look good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you can, but those short-term actions can have long-term ramifications that are extremely negative, both in terms of your, uh, your uh, PR, your people, in terms of attracting or retaining good talent, uh, all sorts of things. So well, let me translate a little bit because it's very please. interesting what you're saying. Um, in, in my world, in the world of coaching, we find that people, individuals, leaders have beliefs that they hold on to. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times those beliefs have historically helped them succeed. Sure. But there comes a point where those same beliefs are actually costly, right? So, and those same beliefs are maintained as a method of protection. Yeah. Right. Instead of, a, instead of helping them grow or get to that next place. And it sounds like what you're saying is that this mentality, this belief that I've got to look good now, I've got to make my books look good now. I've got to, you know, make sure that we're profitable immediately is I would say a protective belief that has leaders being a little bit more short-sighted in their approach and perhaps foregoing the people orientation for short-term profitability. Is that what you're really saying? I'm, I'm speaking my language. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think especially, so like take for example, the pandemic right now. Yeah. Companies, companies are struggling. Um, spending is down. Pe- you know, people aren't going out. And so if I'm running a company and I'm really str- worried about being able to make payroll, I'm worried about keep, even being able to keep my doors open. Uh, it's understandable that there's going to be budget concerns and constraints, right? Um, and there's a lot of different levers that you can pull and there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. One of the quickest levers that you can pull is to save a lot of money very fast is to lay people off. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that it's never appropriate to lay people off. I'm just, that's a lever. That's, that's an option. Um, and there are short term, short term benefits, but there's also long term ramifications for that. Um, we might find ourselves in a situation where that has to happen mm-hmm. and there's really no other alternative. But when you take a long-term perspective uh, that's not driven by crisis and, you know, in trying to res- respond to uh, a challenge in the moment, when you take that long-term perspective, a-, a lot of times there's things that you can do um, strategically over time to accomplish the same um, cost savings without hurting the company culture uh, and some of those other negative aspects. So for example, layoffs, layoffs may have to happen in a crisis moment because you can't plan for COVID. But, but in other situations where we're not responding to a crisis, layoffs leave a lot of carnage in their wake. So even if I'm the employee that doesn't get laid off, I feel good that I still have my job but I am no longer confident that my employer is going to be loyal to me. Uh, and research, research has shown, and it's been, I, it's been my experience working with organizations uh, over the last couple of decades, that, 
that when that happens, the people that stay immediately start looking for other jobs right. um, because, because the company has no loyalty to them and they need to look out for themselves and their families. And so they, even though they're presently, they're there physically, they're not necessarily there mentally. They're not putting everything into their role and they're, they're, they've withdrawn mentally and they're looking for other opportunities and they're going to jump as soon as they find a good opportunity. And so the long lasting ramifications of that one decision um, can hurt the company for years. Uh, and again, maybe that maybe you have to make as a leader, you have to make that hard decision to, to lay off some of the workforce, but there are other options in terms of staffing. Um, there are furloughs, there, there are pay reductions, there are, you know, moving to four days a week instead of five days a week. There, there are lots of things that you can do. And when an organization has a people orientation, they'll explore all of those options and they'll even try to get input from their people so that collectively they can make a decision. I had a neighbor um, back during the 2008 recession. Uh, he's an architect. He, he's an architect. Uh, we're not neighbors anymore. Um, his firm immediately saw like a 50% drop in business mm -hmm. during that time because it hit it hit the housing industry uh, and, and architectural firms really hard. Now his firm could have just laid people off, but what they did was they gathered their whole team together, some 30 employees at this firm. And they just had a discussion. Here's what we're facing. We've had a 50% drop. We cannot afford, like we will go under. We cannot afford to continue paying everyone the same amount. And there's simply not enough work for all of you to do. So mm -hmm. we're either we're either going to have to take a 20%, like either we're going to have to lay off 20% of you, or we can take a 20% pay cut and you can all work four days a week instead of five days a week. And collectively, they had that conversation and they decided that they wanted to protect everyone's jobs and take everyone kind of balance out the hit that everyone would take. Right. And that's what they did. And they weathered the storm and they came out of it and everyone kept their jobs and eventually they got restored to their normal pay um, and, and things were okay. That had a, a long lasting effect on our neighbor who mm -hmm. recognized, you know, that my, my employer cares about me and my family um, mm -hmm. and that, that engendered more loyalty long-term. So again, that's just one example, but there's lots of ways that organizations can inadvertently shoot themselves in the foot, even when they have the best of intentions. Right. And, and so we just have to be thoughtful and careful and communicative and, and try to make sure that we're uh, responding in the way that's going to be best, not only in the short term, but in the long term as well. So one of the things that you talk about or that your area of expertise is what we would call change management like helping leaders and organizations manage change more effectively. So um, I read an article, I think you posted it on one of your, um, maybe it was in, on LinkedIn, but the idea that like, it, it's funny to think about managing change when change is something that's always happening. Like anytime you want to increase revenue, you're making a change from what it is now to where you want it to be. So it's like businesses are always in change. So it's yeah. kind of a funny concept to think that um, we actually need to introduce the idea of change in an organization. But what is it that makes people so resistant to change from your perspective? Like, why is this even a topic? And really, it's a simple response. I think it's, it's human nature. 
to be resistant. We like predictability. So, so I mean, most people do. There, there's relatively few that just like the invigoration of kind of chaos. <laughs> I've known people like that, but most people aren't like that. Most people like routine. Most people like predictability. They like to feel in control. And when things are changing around them, they, that's threatened. Um, now, there's small changes that happen in organizations constantly. And then there's big, huge changes that occur. Um, so change management is kind of about how to manage all of it um, mm -hmm. with particular focus really on the larger scale change initiatives that may occur in a, in a company, but still helping organizational leaders have a change mindset, understanding that that change is inevitable. It's going to be constant. And we need to find ways to positively embrace the change rather than make constantly resistant to it. Um, and, and helping our people to have the same mindset so that we're not every time we have to make some adjustment, some tweak to our strategic approach. We have a new product or service. We bring on a new technology to help us do our work. Um, we hire a new person. All these things are change, right? And we have to be able to, in order to be responsive in, a mar in the marketplace, we have to be able to embrace change and not dig our heels in every single time some new thing has to happen because that hurts our productivity. So, so do that's you have generally some what kind it's of, about. Do you have some kind of a framework or model that you use to help leaders introduce change more effectively in, in their organizations? So when I work with organizations on change management issues, one of the first things we will do is talk with the leadership team uh, about their perspective on what they're trying to accomplish, what they see the problem as, what they see a possible solution as. And then we, I encourage them to, to be open to additional data, additional information. Uh, and usually what will happen is then we will go out and conduct interviews, we'll do observations, we'll do surveys to collect more data so that we can have informed decision-making. Um, so the, the basic model is, is essentially the scientific method. I mean, there, there's, there's variations on, on it, um, but essentially it's go in, try to understand the problem, develop hypotheses, um, collect data, analyze the data, feedback the data, and help um, leaders make the best possible decisions based on the understanding of, of what we've uncovered. Um, in terms of, of responding to resistance, there's a, there's a lot of things you, you can do. And one of the best things you can do is to be transparent, to openly communicate, and to seek input and create buy-in amongst your employees. So if I'm a management team and I want to do some big technology change initiative where we're switching from you know, one uh, HR software to another one, for example, that's a major initiative. That's going to require a lot of people to learn new processes, learn how to use the new technology. It's going to require training to support that. It's going to require, um, you know, it's going to have implications for performance management and for pay. All these different things are connected to that one thing. Um, and people are going to be nervous about it. And, mm -hmm. and managers and supervisors are going to be worried about how it's going to impact their workload. So you have to communicate and you have to be transparent and you have to ask them for what they think. You have to, you have to find out what their pain points are so that you're actually filling an actual gap, not a perceived gap. Um, all of these things go into reducing resistance because if, if, uh, if I as an employee or kind of a lower level, level manager or supervisor 
I can recognize, you know, I have every day I do my work and I have these pain points that I get, I get frustrated about. And I realize that management recognizes that and that they're willing to respond to that and help me make my job better and to do my, enable me to do my job better, then I'm going to be much more inclined to adopt that change, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, willingly rather than dig my heels in and resist. Uh, it's a it's a fairly simple point, but right. so many organizations miss it, and they just they 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 a leader will send out an edict from on high and say this is mm-hmm. what it's going to be, mm-hmm. um, get on board, and they're missing a huge opportunity uh, to to have meaningful and effective sustainable change. So what you're saying again, translation is. Uh, number one is make decisions based on a more well-rounded source of data. Sure. Yep. So that's number one, collect more data and collect it from a variety of sources so that you're getting a really good picture of what's actually happening and what the problem truly is. The second thing is if you're going to make a change, engage those people who will be affected and impacted by the change to help make critical decisions and uh, get involved in the process of change. Yes. Okay. Uh, I have one more question. Yes. So before this interview, I was sitting, I'm at home. And so I was sitting downstairs with two of my five children. And I said, I have an interview coming up with a gentleman named Jonathan Westover. And I'm wondering about what we should talk about. One of my kids did a little research and discovered, I don't know where, on your website, maybe on your LinkedIn profile, I don't know, the word, I don't even know how to say it, sycophant, psychophant? Uh Sycophant, yeah. He said, why don't you ask him about that? And (laughs) why it's such a bad idea to have a psychophant in your organization? And I said, I don't even know what that is. So we did some research and we discovered that a psychophant, psychophant, I can't even say it, um, is a person who expresses, overly expresses compliments. Did I, did I get it right? In Uh, other words, they're a bit of an ass kisser. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the problem. It's not a problem having people that are positive and compliment each other. Um, That's great. Um, Sycophant syndrome is a problem uh, and it's usually coupled with an insecure leader um, who surrounds themselves with yes men. Um, They they surround themselves with people who stroke their ego, who are constantly complimenting them and reinforcing their understanding and their ideas. So they're not challenging their ideas. They're not trying to push for the best decision-making. They're they're just constantly uh, stroking that ego. And that's a major problem for organizations, and it's a major problem for leaders. And leaders don't even necessarily have to do it on purpose. I, I think it's kind of natural. It's human nature, and it happens naturally in organizations unless leaders proactively try to avoid it. Because when you're elevated to a position of power and authority, um, usually that happens, at least in part, because you have, you have capabilities, right? You're skilled. Um, you've been successful. So people look up to you. Um, and naturally, when you're in a position of power, people are going to look to you for answers. And you're going to naturally attract people who want to get into your good graces. Um, and they're going to want to to not make waves. And they're going to want to make sure that you see them as a team player and, and so right. on and so forth. 
So it's not necessarily a nefarious thing, though it mm-hmm. can be. There are times where it totally can be. But it's it's a natural byproduct of the power differential that can occur in organizations. And so I, as a leader, need to proactively make sure that I'm constantly bringing different voices to the table so we can have a robust discussion, challenge each other's ideas, come up with the best solutions, and that I'm not just surrounding myself with sycophants who are these suck-ups, um, who are the yes-men, who are just always reinforcing what I'm already thinking. That can be a huge problem um, in a variety of ways for organizations. Uh, and so, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of work on that recently, and I'm working on an article right now um, around that. And it's it's kind of the, I, I published an article a few weeks ago that was on toxic leadership um, about the bully leader, mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the person who, um, you know, can be mentally, psychologically abusive, if not even physically abusive to their people, they take advantage of their people. Um, often that's the more negative and purposeful type of dysfunction that leaders can sometimes um, create within their organizations. But those same people are often also surrounded by sycophants mm-hmm. because they they need that security and they need people who are willing to be punching bags and keep smiling and saying everything's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in part, it's this is kind of the flip side of that coin of toxic leadership. There's often also toxic followership, toxic right. um, sycophants who are just constantly um, reinforcing what you're thinking. We need to disrupt that, plain and simple, um, because that's not good for the long-term health of the organization. And it sounds like to some degree you're saying leaders build this type of problem unconsciously like it kind of just happens they fall into a bit of a trap because you know they are naturally charismatic they let naturally take on the role of leader and people sometimes naturally take on the the role of follower and prop up the leader and so these positions and these roles are kind of entrenched and not on purpose they just kind of happen sometimes it it can happen on purpose and there are definitely examples of that but yeah i would say most of the time, it's just kind of a natural byproduct that mm-hmm. can occur unless mm-hmm. we unless we purposefully disrupt it. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Jonathan, where do people find you to learn more about your school, your university, your consulting services, and anything else you want to share? Yeah, I think the easiest place is to go to innovativehumancapital.com. Um, there you will find information about all the services that we provide. You'll you'll find a link, a uh, page for our, our podcast. Um, you'll you'll find um, information about all of our team, including myself. So you can see a, a more extensive bio that also links back to my university. So if you want to learn more about everything I'm doing, that's probably the best place to go because it'll connect say it again to everything. Innovativehumancapital.com. Jonathan, it was such a pleasure spending this time with you and turning the tables where I get to interview you instead of the other way around. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Thank you for giving us time to consider some things that we don't usually consider and think about it um, you know, in this parallel fashion, a little bit academically with a huge um, practical application as well. So I appreciate that. I enjoy that on a personal level. So thank you so much for sharing. Uh, kind of that duality with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a true pleasure. You're always fun to talk with and I hope you do it again soon. (laughs) I do too.
We are excited to announce the launch of Human Capital Innovation's new e-magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. We hope you'll check out our first issue and please let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.